I'm gonna be vulnerable with you here for a second. I love disco. I think it's a fantastically rich and complex genre that produced, in my opinion, some of the best songs ever made. I think that it was an incredibly important period in American musical history, and that it often has an unfairly maligned reputation. And so today, I want to talk about what that comes from. About the day that disco was cut down by the forces of racism and homophobia. You're listening to Hidden History, and this is episode 84, Disco Inferno. Alright, enough of that. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, then subscribe or leave a rating. Special thanks in this episode goes out to Ted Tripp, Hidden History's very first contributor on Patreon. If you'd like to join him, then click the link in this description. And now, on to the show. So if I want to talk about how disco dies, understandably, first I need to talk about how disco came to be. Etymologically, the word disco comes from the French word discothèque, meaning library of records, but that's not really super important. The musical lineage of disco is really what I've got to talk about, and that's a pretty complicated one. To simplify, disco emerged out of the confluence of a number of precursor genres, mainly rhythm and blues, soul, and funk. In this analysis, it's critical that we pay attention to the fact that disco emerged from a conglomeration of black-authored music. And so disco, which would come to be associated with the frivolity and exclusion of the white upper class, was born out of music written by and intended for the black working class. As a result of that history, the early years of disco and proto-disco were dominated by black groups and artists like Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the OJs, MFSB, Eddie Kendrick, Hot Chocolate, and Sister Sledge. Cultural critic Abe Peck once wrote that the proliferation of disco led black artists to, quote, conquer the pop charts in a way that they never did even at the height of rhythm and blues. And so when disco really emerges onto the commercially popular music scene in the mid-70s and dethrones the white-controlled rock and roll which had dominated the charts since the 50s, it does that as an extension of the power and talent of the black artist. Disco may have never been a cohesive genre with a clearly defined set of rigid rules, but one relative constant that made it incredibly popular and accessible was its standard of radical inclusion. Disco was a genre that was able to bridge gaps and overcome divides. The early to mid-70s was not a happy time in America. The economy was in a massive slump, Watergate had only really just happened, there was the OPEC oil crisis, the Vietnam War was dragging on, ending in 1975, Nixon resigned in 74, then Ford pardoned him, leaving Americans with the impression that our politicians were above the law. The white flight had decimated the tax base of America's largest cities, leading to urban decay, deferred maintenance, and cuts to social services that directly resulted in a massive rise in violent crime. 
The largest city in America was about to go bankrupt, and there was little hope on the horizon that things would get any better any time soon. And so it's only natural that a type of media would emerge onto the scene to provide people with an escapist outlet. Disco is escapist. On the by and large, it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about political consciousness and deeply rooted social issues in the way that, say, soul does. Disco isn't really concerned with telling melancholy stories of bittersweet romance in the way that rhythm and blues does. Disco is dance music. And that's not a dig. Not to say that it's somehow lesser because it doesn't do those things that other genres do. After all, those other genres don't do the things that disco does. Not in composition and not in culture. I mean, the value of music is not derived from its instrumental complexity, nor from any other one specific factor, for that matter. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the music theory behind disco because, well, that's not the point I'm trying to make. But I think there's something to be said about the fact that in order to record some of these songs, you needed a literal orchestra. I mean, I think the complexity there is just spectacular. But anyway, disco is an exceptionally inclusive genre, and it demonstrates that really in two ways through composition and through culture. Now, I want to talk about composition first because that's overall a little bit shorter and more tangential to the story I'm trying to tell. Uh, Disco does some very strange and interesting things with how it manifests over the course of its life. Artists feel the freedom to take the general bounds of disco and apply them in a lot of unique ways. Like, there was a group of artists that recorded disco versions of classical music. So from that, you get songs like Brahms' Disco Dance No. 5, a remix of Brahms' Hungarian Dance, which sounds like this. And you also get pieces like A Fifth of Beethoven, an inversion of Beethoven's Fifth, which sounds like this. And so, whether or not you like these pieces, think they're very silly, or outright hate them. The fact that disco occupied a large enough bandwidth to give rise to, and popularize, songs like Brahms' Disco Dance No. 5 says something about the philosophy of disco. And also, I feel like it's important to mention, uh, but modern remixes of classical pieces also have a precedent in musical history. If you listen to electronic music now, you have pieces like A Fifth of Beethoven to thank. If you'd like to learn more about that musical lineage, I suggest you listen to episode 2, Music from Mathematics. Right, so what does this say about the philosophy of disco? Well, that inclusion is the rule, and that there is no one policing what is and is not acceptable in the disco space. 
It should come as no surprise, then, that when we talk about the human aspect of disco culture, we have to talk about queer acceptance into disco. So, in the United States, until 1973, same-sex attraction was considered a mental illness. And that same year, there were only five states, Colorado, Oregon, Connecticut, Delaware, and Illinois, where it was legal to be gay. Not-so-fun fact, the remaining 14 states to decriminalize homosexuality did so after the Supreme Court case Lawrence v. Texas, which was decided in 2003. The result of this anti-gay legislation, coupled with a deep-seated homophobia and fear of the quote-unquote effeminate in American culture, resulted, obviously, in queer individuals being excluded from public spaces or otherwise forced to conceal their identity. Disco actively fought to tear down this barrier, creating a queer-accepting space within the confines of the standard disco club. In fact, one of the things that popularized disco on a broad national scale was its incorporation into the music sets that DJs would play at traditionally gay nightclubs. These clubs then became extraordinarily popular discos, the music consumption tastes of which significantly influenced the course of disco's development. This in turn elevated LGBT groups and artists such as The Village People and Sylvester. Songs that you certainly know were the product of this collaboration between the two marginalized groups. Like uh, the song Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation. You know, this one. Well, it was initially a flop, and then it became incredibly popular at the gay clubs of New York, causing it to be remixed with a bass boost and re-released to sell two million copies. So disco is created by Black America and popularized with the help of gay America. The culture that it creates is one of passion and eroticism that subverts sexuality and gender roles as they're typically represented in popular music. And so it should be relatively unsurprising that a reactionary movement developed primarily among white conservative Americans that sought to destroy the social standards that disco culture had created. It's difficult to overstate simply how popular disco was. In 1977, Saturday Night Fever premieres in theaters, which some critics say made disco truly mainstream, quote, brought it out of the closet, and therefore made it acceptable to straight white men. The soundtrack from the film went on to become one of the best-selling albums of all time. It was clear now that there was no commercial or career risk in producing or performing disco. It was safe. So as a result, new as well as previously established white groups began to appropriate disco as their own, which was the beginning of its association with the exclusivity of the white upper class. As a result of that mainstreaming, disco continued to become more and more popular. By 1979, disco accounted for 40% of the Billboard chart, and across the country there were 20,000 discos. 
But as Jisco's popularity grew, so did its opposition. Now, this group of people who were opposed to disco music, they didn't just not like it. They hated it. Disco inspired in them such a rabid anger that they proudly wanted to, quote, put a bullet through the jukebox and wore shirts that simply said, death to disco. Now, I'm a disco fan, and I can admit that disco is not the perfect genre. That's why sometimes I listen to something else. And there are, of course, valid criticisms that you can levy against disco. There are with any genre. But when we look at the anti-disco movement, let's call it, we don't see good-faith criticisms aiming to help improve the craft of music. What we see are dog whistles. They're talking in code to someone else who's on the level. Now, there are plenty of types of music that I don't enjoy listening to. I'm not a big fan of heavy metal. But if someone asks me if I like it, I just say, oh, not really. It's not for me. If I told you, no, I hate it. I want to kill heavy metal. You would rightfully think that I'm probably overreacting. The only way that something like a music genre would engender such a strong response would be if there was something at stake. Maybe you've invested your child's college fund into a marching band rental service. Or maybe an extremely popular genre of music that empowers the marginalized and challenges gender roles is diametrically opposed to everything you believe in. The closest modern comparison that comes to mind is when alt-right provocateur and professional baby Ben Shapiro says that he doesn't think rap is music. Now, he doesn't genuinely hold that belief. From a music theory standpoint, he knows that it's not true. But he's using it as a dog whistle. He's signifying, with a degree of plausible deniability, that he thinks black people are lesser. If he could respond to that statement, he would probably say something along the lines of, uh, and I'm not going to do a Ben Shapiro voice here, I just can't bring myself to do that. He would probably say, uh, Hypothetically, theoretically, let's just say for the sake of the argument, that uh, rap doesn't meet my arbitrary standard for what constitutes music. Now, I would severely caution you from taking cultural advice from a far-right troll who has accidentally admitted that his wife isn't attracted to him. But you get the gist. When a diverse, accepting cultural movement creates a violently phrased response among the group whose hegemony the movement challenges, it becomes a little bit deeper than just not liking disco. And so, to kind of put a bow on it, I've reached the main event of this episode, the high watermark of the anti-disco reactionary movement, Disco Demolition Night. Let's, uh, let's set the scene. It's July 12th, 1979. It's a warm night, maybe a slight breeze at the Kaminsky Baseball Stadium in Chicago. 
It was a pretty slow season, but Bill Veek, the owner of the White Sox, was determined to fill some seats. That night, there was a doubleheader between the Sox and the Detroit Tigers, and with the help of the rabidly anti-disco radio host Steve Dahl, he had devised one hell of a halftime show. Disco Demolition Night. Attendees who brought a disco record to the stadium would have their ticket discounted to 98 cents. And then, after the first game, all of the records would be put in the center of the baseball field and blown up. White Sox games averaged about 15,000 spectators. The park could hold 44,000 total, and they expected only about 20,000 people to show up. When the day finally came, tickets completely sold out. Spectators began climbing through windows, climbing over fences and hopping turnstiles with their records in hand. The massive crate that they had put out to hold the vinyls quickly filled, and so the crowd began to throw their records from the seats in the stands. The estimated attendance? Between 50 and 55,000. The spectators came carrying thousands of signs demanding a death to disco. The game had to stop three times on account of the crowd flooding the field with the records and liquor bottles. As the first game went on inside, the thousands still outside the stadium began to create massive bonfires out of heaps of records, eagerly trying to find a way to see the explosion to come. When the time came, Veek drove out onto the field in a jeep, wearing an army helmet and whipped the crowd into a frenzy, chanting, Disco sucks. He detonated the crate filled with records and left in its place a massive hole in the field. Immediately, thousands of spectators flooded into the diamond, destroying everything in their wake, ripping up the turf and lighting a massive fire in the center of the diamond. The mob was only dispersed when the Chicago riot police arrived and arrested 39 people. Over 30 people are estimated to have been injured in the melee. The stadium itself was left in an unsafe state, and so the second game was forfeited to the Tigers. Almost like a switch, the popularity of disco music cratered and by the following year the production of new disco was practically non-existent. In a 2014 op-ed on the 35th anniversary of Disco Demolition Night, Mark Anderson, a political journalist who attended the promotion when he was 15, wrote, By 1979, rock itself had grown old and stale, even though we didn't realize it at the time. We still wanted to cling to our long guitar solos, pounding drums, and heroes in tight pants to reign supreme for a long time to come, the rest of the world be damned. Popular music culture was ripe for a takeover, and disco just happened to be the next thing that came along. But we didn't like it, and gleefully poured scorn and derision on a culture whose fans were regular citizens and neighbors, just like us. As a result, 60,000 kids happily paid 98 cents to see a man dressed in army fatigues and riding a jeep blow up their hated musical enemies that warm summer night. 
Even though we didn't say it in these terms, we certainly didn't want black folks to take over our rightful place at the top of youth culture, as expressed in radio airtime, TV specials, and concerts in places like Comiskey Park. Because, in the end, the chance to yell, Disco sucks, meant more than simply a musical style choice. It was a chance to push back on a whole set of social dynamics that lied just beneath the surface of a minor battle between a DJ and a radio station that decided to change formats. More importantly, it was a chance for a whole lot of people to say they didn't like the way the world was changing around them, or who they saw as the potential victors in a cultural and demographic war. While disco may no longer be a popular genre of music, we can, in our daily lives, embody those values that it represented. Human values of love, acceptance, and inclusion. And so, to finish out this episode, I'd like to leave you by playing one of my favorite disco songs. Because what the hell? This show is educational, I can do that, it's fair use. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off. I believe in miracles. Where you from? You sexy thing. Sexy thing, you. I believe in miracles. Since you came along. You sexy thing. Sexy, you
Kiss me now. 